Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Evelina Ohav and Lord Alton of Liverpool about their new book, State Responses to Crimes of Genocide, What Went Wrong and How to Change It. It was published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. Uh, Dr. Evelina Ohad and Lord Alton, welcome to the show. Hello. Pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you both here. Um, now, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about both of yourselves and how you came to write your book, State Responses to Crimes of Genocide? What went wrong and how to change it? I'll kick off if you like. And I, My interest really goes all the way back to my childhood when my late grandfather, who had served in the First World War, had been in Jerusalem at the raising of the siege there with uh, General Allenby. But, of course, they saw the remains of people who had been executed by the retreating Turks, and these were Armenians. It was during the middle of the Armenian genocide. Hitler, of course, would famously go on to say, who now remembers uh, the Armenians? And that posed a lot of questions for me as a, as a child about why it was that such wicked and terrible things could happen. And uh, having been born in the East End of London, which had a sizable Jewish community, where many of them were emigres who had been escaping from either pogroms in Russia or the, or the Holocaust in Germany, and where I was brought up on the, on the public housing estate, where I was brought up, our neighbor, one of our neighbors was, was a Jewish lady. And when my father, who'd fought in the Second World War as a desert rat, he was at Monte Cassino and Al Alamein, when he told me some of the stories of what had occurred, that, that fixed in my mind the thought that we in our generation must do more about this. Now, I didn't have an opportunity until I was elected to the House of Commons 40 years ago, now over 40 years ago. Um, but within weeks of arriving, uh, I read about the massacres in Cambodia, and I raised on the floor of the House of Commons the the atrocities that had been committed by Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. And after that, I took an interest, as it were, in atrocity crimes and what we could do about it. Then coming here to the House of Lords as an independent crossbench peer, cause after cause, wave after wave of, uh, of genocidal acts, atrocity crimes seemed to occur. I went to Rwanda, I saw the aftermath of the genocide there. I traveled 20 years ago this year to uh, Darfur, and I reported on what I well, I saw there. I spoke in the House about it. We've just been commemorating that anniversary. 300,000 people were killed, 2 million people displaced, and were still living with the consequences. And even though the International Criminal Court brought in an, an indictment against Omar al-Bashir, uh, the fact is he has still never been brought to trial. It's the closest we've probably got to any sitting head of state. But in the context now of all that we're subsequently seeing in places like northern Iraq, what happened to the Yazidis, what's happening to the Hazaras uh, out of Afghanistan and in now many Pakistan, what's happening in Ukraine and the war crimes that have been taking place. They're all big questions about what do you do about those things? Why are states and and paramilitary groups and individuals getting away with genocide and what more can we do about it? So that was why uh, I had the good fortune to meet uh, Dr. Ohab and Evelina and I decided during the pandemic that we would start to put together some of the stories and think about what we could, what more we could do about it. And I was particularly engaged at that moment in raising the cases of Uyghur Muslims. I'm vice chairman of the All Party Parliamentary Group on the Uyghurs. And that was, a, I think, a starting point for the book. 
But once we started to explore everything from the role that Raphael Lemkin had played in even inventing, creating the word uh, genocide, all the way through to the contemporary acts of genocide, but the most recent failings, it was clear to us that the, the, the international community has, has failed in its duty to make the Genocide Convention of 1948 into a reality. So here we are, the 75th anniversary this year of the convention, the 75th anniversary also of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And here is an opportunity for us to to make real the promises of 75 years ago. And that's why I've been moving amendments to bills that have been going through Parliament, for instance, the Trade Act, as it now is, but also the National Health Service legislation. We've taken every opportunity to put in clauses that address the issue of uh, individuals or states that have been committing atrocity crimes and what consequences there should be for them on things like trade uh, and and you know the business deals that uh, often so dominate the decisions that governments make but i think evelina can probably say a lot more than me just just, just a few words uh, from me um for me the story with with the topic of genocide started uh, very much with my granddad who fought in the second world war and when i was a kid he used to tell me that he fought in the Second World War so that I don't see those atrocities in my lifetime. And um, and of course, when the atrocities in Bosnia and Rwanda happened, I was way too too, too small to 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 remember and to understand what was happening. But um, but but that message stayed with me for the rest of my life. Um, that um, people like like him fought in the Second World War, hoping that this is going to be the end of the atrocities. But unfortunately, it was not. And then in back in 2015, I attended the UN Forum on Minority Issues, and there was some Yazidi community representative talking about the atrocities against the Yazidis and Christians, and he said that this this is genocide. And I remember I took that message with me from 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 that meeting at the UN and decided to have a look into whether the atrocities uh, indeed meet the legal definition of genocide, and having examine it and I, I thought that yes we are talking about genocide so why is the world not doing anything about it uh, why are we not acting in accordance with our duties because we have clearly done duties and I remember for me that was very much the start um, of of the recent work on 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 the topic and of course uh, that's how I also started working with Lord Alton and with this book indeed it started during the lockdown but ultimately of course, there was so much that uh, Lord Alton produced in terms of uh, parliamentary speeches, uh, briefings, articles, and also I have been covering the topic of, of genocide for, for a number of years. But everything has been really all over the place, very fragmented. Sometimes if you focus only on the situation of the Uyghurs or of the Yazidis or, or any other case, uh, sometimes you can miss the, the point and you can miss the issue that it's it's happening all over the world and and we cannot ignore it anymore and we wanted to put it in one place so that people can get the feeling that uh, i do believe that one gets when they read the book that um you are overwhelmed with the information and you're overwhelmed with uh, the early warning signs risk factors and and the book also engages with some of the interventions that Lord Dalton made in, in Parliament. In the book, this is just a tip of an iceberg, what you can find in Hansard. But nonetheless, again and again and again, Lord Dalton has been raising it with, with the government. So why there have been no response? So I think that was really the idea behind the book, to 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 share the feeling with, with, with the readers, the feeling that we have that 
it is happening all over the world and we are not doing enough. Yeah, and I want to come back to all of those points you raised, both the substantive issues in terms of the different genocides and the the comparisons and bringing them all together. Um, and also, you know, this idea of why is the world not doing enough? Because when you read all of these different cases together in your book, it is quite overwhelming when you see how widespread genocide is um, and all that is going on. But just before we get into that, I'm wondering if you can just frame for listeners um, the legal definition of genocide um, and the legal duties under international law that states um, are obligated to undertake. Sure, Evelina will unpack for you the actual definitions in the 1948 uh, convention. But let me try and paraphrase it in words maybe that make it more accessible mm-hmm. to the viewer. Since Bosnia, there is a sort of additional duty, and that is to predict, yeah. to look for signs of genocide. But what the actual convention requires is for all the signatories, which includes the United Kingdom, of course, to prevent genocides from happening. It includes a duty to protect those who are likely to be subject to genocide. And then, of course, it includes a duty to punish those who have been responsible for the genocide. And I've often said that we're failing in every single category. So, yes, this is about where an individual group of people, and for instance, it doesn't include, for instance, we've looked at this in the case of North Korea, it doesn't include the political classes. So even though political classes are targeted in North Korea, that doesn't constitute genocide, but what's happening to them does constitute, and there's a finding on this that was presented to the United Nations 10 years ago, that crimes against humanity, which is a separate legal definition, are being committed in North Korea. So that's one category of people who are are not covered. But there are other categories, such as people because of their ethnicity, and so Uyghurs immediately spring to mind, but people because of their religion, and again, Rohingya Muslims immediately spring to mind in that kind of context. And the Christians in northern Iraq, the Yazidis, are targeted because of their religion and ethnicity. So these, under the Genocide Convention, these specified groups determine the requirement on the international community to act. But the problem, as I've often pointed out, and I've introduced private members' bills about this, I've introduced amendments to legislation about this, <laughs> the Foreign Commonwealth Office government, if you like, constantly wriggles off the book and says only a court of law can make that determination, knowing full well that there is no British court of law empowered to do that, and that the international court, such as the International Criminal Court, set up by the Treaty of Rome, <laughs> it's not going to do it because it has to go via the United Nations Security Council. And guess what? Either China or Russia will use their veto for it to make progress. And Evelina and I have looked at things that could be done to change the use of veto in the in the case cases of crimes of aggression or international crime. Uh, and I believe that it's high time that the international community got its head around that. And maybe post-Ukraine, uh, let's hope it will be post-Ukraine, we'll, we'll get around to doing it. So I think, I hope that gives you a sort of layman's account, but now over to the lawyer. <laughs> And so, of course, when we talk about genocide, genocide has a very legal, uh, precise legal definition in Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. So um, I think when we talk about genocide and when we use with Lord Alton the word genocide, we normally mean the legal definition of genocide rather than 
just a statement to to emphasize rhetoric. The, yeah. Yes, uh, some kind of rhetoric to 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 emphasize the severity of the atrocities. And uh, Article Two of the Genocide Convention says that genocide means any of the following acts, and um, Article Two lists five different um, acts committed uh, with intent to destroy, in whole or in parts, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. So under the Genocide Convention, under Article 2, genocide refers only to targeting, specific targeting of four groups. And as Lord Alton already mentioned, for example, political groups are not included. That's the reason we cannot include, for example, the targeting uh, of um, of individuals in of groups in North Korea as genocide. Um, but national, ethnic, racial, and religious groups are covered within the definition of, of genocide. And uh, the five acts that are listed in Article 2 include killing uh, members of the group, of course, causing serious bodily or mental harm, deliber deliberately inflicting um, on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about the destruction of the group in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and possibly transferring children from one group to another. So very important to, to note that within those five um, listed uh, prohibited acts, killing is only one of them. And very often we focus too much on the killing um, and ignore the other four um, prohibited acts. And it is crucial really to emphasize that there are five and there are also not, uh, that there could be also broadly understood. Um, and the most important within the definition is really the specific intent to destroy the group in whole or in part. So this is something that is very difficult to uh, to show. But ultimately, we are not looking only at the, war, the words that are said um, or any documents that say black and white that we want to destroy a protected group in whole or in part, because ultimately this is not going to happen very often. With Daesh, we've seen that. Daesh was very clear about its intent to destroy um, Yazidis, Christians, and other groups. But ultimately, in many cases, we won't have this um, this clear evidence. But um, considering jurisprudence, it is clear that we can also infer the specific intent from the acts themselves. So, um, and in relation to all those elements of, of, of the legal definition of genocide, there is a lot of jurisprudence that can be used as well to help us understand it. But ultimately, what differentiates genocide from, for example, crimes against humanity will be always the specific intent to destroy. But even if we cannot prove specific intent to destroy the protected group in whole or in part, we are ultimately talking about other atrocity crimes, could be crimes against humanity, war crimes, and we cannot stop the conversation there if we don't think it is genocide. And, and again, this is something that we've seen all over the world that once there is no determination of genocide, the topic is dropped rather than continuing further uh, inquiries to look into other atrocity crimes. On the positive side, I would say from a political point of view that here in Parliament, the G word does matter. And although it's not a word that should be used inaccurately, as Evelina has rightly said, it's also a word that ought to speak its name. That when we see these crimes uh, occurring and name them for what they are, as the House of Commons has done, it's specifically passed resolutions on the plight of the Yazidis 
and on the plight of the Uyghur Muslims and has said it has named this as genocide. And it's been very interesting to me to see how across the parties and across both houses, so bipartisan and bicameral, the people where genocide is involved realize that this is the crime above all crimes and that they must take some kind of action. Getting them to take action on, as it were, human rights violations is much trickier. And that's when people start arguing about, oh, we've got to engage, we've got to have dialogue, we've got to have trade, we've got to follow business leads and all these. I mean, some of which is probably a good thing, but not at the expense of people's lives. And therefore, when the word genocide is the one that you place before them and say, is it licit to trade, for instance, with a slave trading nation that is accused by the British House of Commons of genocide. And that's quite a tricky question for politicians to have to address, but it's the right question to put. And I hope that increasingly, but we, I hope our book will help to push this up the agenda so that people will ask their prospective members of parliament uh, when they come to vote at the next general election, are they going to support reforms to the determination of genocide so that appropriate action can be taken by states like the United Kingdom? Yeah, and I just want to pick up on this point about the Uyghur Muslims. Um, and you said that in British Parliament it has been named a genocide, but there's been arguably limited action on from the, on the response from the rest of the world. And I just want to quote from your book. You write that, Apart from the limitations of the international law and international mechanisms, China's position as a 21st century trading superpower disincentivizes opposition and it relies on the difficulty of finding any state willing to jeopardize their lucrative trading and investment relationships. This has led to a craven self-interest dictating the world's response. It has also revealed the depth and effectiveness of the Chinese government's subversion, subversion of UN institutions. And you mentioned this before but most notably the UN Security Council, the UN General Assembly, the UN Human Rights Council, and agencies such as the World Health Organization, all of which appear increasingly wholly subsidiaries of the Chinese government. In turn, this has hollowed out a rules-based order on the rule of law and liberal values. Now, contextualizing this genocide in Xinjiang, can you comment on the global response, um, the implications for the Uyghur Muslims, and you and also, what more should the world be doing? The really important question, and that's why many of us have been raising this specifically in terms of the UK's response via things like our trade policies. I mean, intriguingly, only today, the vice president of the People's Republic of China's, uh, Zhang Zheng, will be arriving in London to represent Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party regime in Beijing. Uh, he stands accused of trashing the whole of the and the British Sino Treaty that provided Hong Kong with all of its uh, democratic rights, and those treaty ab obligations have been overturned. He has overseen the imprisonment of over 1,200 political activists and journalists. Today is World Media Freedom Day. Uh, it's noticeable that people like Jimmy Lai uh, is in prison in Hong Kong uh, as a result of the actions of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, now, my, none of those things constitute genocide. But what has happened in Xinjiang, and indeed you could say in Tibet and potentially in Mongolia as well, but in jurisdictions of different ethnicities within, governed by the regime uh, in Beijing, you can argue that wicked, terrible things have been done to those minorities. So for instance, this last week, 
uh, people were prohibited at the end of Eid, Muslims were prohibited from gathering in their mosques to pray or even in their own family homes from praying. We were given evidence specifically of cemeteries that had been destroyed, so destruction of identity. We heard awful stories of the separation of families and children and controls over future reproductive rights. So all of these are indicators uh, of genocide. And Sir Jeffrey Nice case, he uh, chaired an independent tribunal, which came to the conclusion that in several categories, it wasn't genocide, but crimes against humanity, but, uh, but because specifically of the prohibitions on family life and reproduction, uh, that this did constitute a genocide. Now, he came to that conclusion, but so did the United States government. Uh, and so the outgoing Trump administration and the incoming Biden administration both have said this is a genocide. So it's not just the British House of Commons. There are other individual states that have also looked at the evidence and came, come to the same conclusion. Then the question is, does should this have any impact on how you deal with such a country? And the Trade Act, which was passed overwhelmingly in the House of Lords, by three-figure majorities said this should have a bearing on the trade agreements that we have with the People's Republic of China. It was watered down in the Commons, but the biggest rebellion by Conservative members within that within this Parliament took place over these issues, led by the former leader of the Conservative Party, Sir Ian Duncan Smith. So there is a lot of cross-party agreement here, and we then successfully uh, pioneered an amendment specifically around the purchase of PPE from China being made by slave labor. Billions of pounds, of course, have been spent on that. Billions, literally, of pounds have poured into the People's Republic of China. We still pour in over a quarter of a million pounds uh, every, I can't even remember how frequently it is now, but week in, week out, we are pouring in money for the storage of PPE that we purchased, which is still there uh, in uh, in China, some of it made in Xinjiang. So prohibitions were put into the uh, procurement bill on the purchase of equipment and medical devices, which is likely to have been made by slave labor and people subjected to genocide. So there are things that countries can do, but clearly it is better if countries act together. And unfortunately, there are some who look at their opportunities rather than their responsibilities. And I look particularly at some of the states that have significant Muslim populations and ask the question, why does a country like Pakistan, for instance, put trade with China and Belt and Road initiatives and money pouring in it into indebtedness as well in the case of many of the countries that have been beneficiaries, why does it put that before the plight of co-religionists who are suffering in such appalling ways in Xinjiang? So we need, that's another reason why we wrote the book, in order to try and raise the temperature on some of these questions. I think very important to, to, to emphasize that, of course, the duties under the Genocide Convention are with stains. So anything that will happen at the UN, where the General Assembly, Security Council, Human Rights Council, will have to be triggered by states. And many states are not willing to do anything unless they know that they have enough support. They don't want failed resolutions. They, they don't want uh, any kind of failed actions. We know that from, from the UK. Uh, UK is very um, risk averse, I would say, it, uh, uh, the least. But, uh, but what it ulti ultimately means that states need to have some kind of trigger for the duties, uh, duties uh, whether duty to prevent, duty to punish. And 
if we look at countries around the world, there are not many that actually have this kind of trigger that will then lead for a lead towards um, implementation of the duties under the genocide convention. So, for example, in the United States, the Secretary of State um, can ask the State Department to do some kind of analysis whether the atrocities amount to genocide, and then, of course, uh, make the formal determination and act upon. In the UK, we don't have anything like that. And the UK government still uh, argues that the determination of genocide is for courts. Um, so, for example, we are waiting, uh, the, the UK government is waiting for courts to analyze the situation, make a determination, and then the UK government should follow with a determination. Although we know that this is not always happening um, either, because we have the case of the Yazidis, where the UK government did not follow the court's determination of genocide and, and continues to well refuse to, to, to recognize the Daesh atrocities as genocide. But, uh, but ultimately, because uh, the UK government and many other governments don't recognize situations of genocide, and actually they should recognize even the serious risk of genocide, they don't have to wait for the full-blown genocide, that's the reason that the responses are not forthcoming. I think an analogy would be if we say a house is on fire, we do everything to send the fire, all the assistance that is needed to, to make sure that, uh, that the situation is addressed. If we say, well, we're not sure whether this, the, the house is on fire, it's most likely it's not, or maybe it is, um, of course our responses will be different. So this is why it's, it is so important to make formal determination of genocide and align our responses with the, this determination. Our response to genocide will always be different to, to talking about, oh, human rights violations. Human rights violations are happening around the world. How to prioritize it? Two years ago, we called a meeting here in Parliament to discuss what was happening in northern Ethiopia. I have been chair of the all-party parliamentary group on Eritrea and was concerned about the repatriation, the reformal or Eritreans from refugee camps in northern Ethiopia to Eritrea. But in calling that meeting, we started to look at what was happening in Tigray. And as more and more evidence came before us, it was quite clear from the work being done by people like Professor Jan Nissen at, at uh, Ghent University, but also here in the UK, people like Martin Plout and Sarah Bourne, who have recently published a, a book on this subject. It was obvious to us that the Foreign Office should be carrying out some assessment of the nature of the crimes being committed against the Tigrayans, who seem to be being targeted because of their ethnicity uh, and some of the violence that is unspeakable crimes and sexual crimes and crimes against women. We, there was so much evidence about this. It took months and months and months to persuade them that they should carry out an assessment, which they did do in the end, and yet they refused to publish that assessment. And of course, they won't publish it because if they came to the same conclusion that we had come to, then it would trigger the, the need to make such a declaration, and they're not going to do that. And this is why, even in the case of the Armenians, 108 years later, only last week, I was one of the group who placed a, a reef at the cenotaph, uh, memorializing here in Whitehall the atrocities against the Armenians 108 years ago. <laughs> it still hasn't been recognized in this country as a genocide, but it has been in many other countries, inclu including by the American Congress. So <laughs> we, we are inconsistent. And one of the reasons we're inconsistent is because of trade. Another reason is because of security. So in the case of the Armenians, 
we don't want to upset the Turks because they're members of NATO. Uh, in the case of the, of the uh, Uyghurs, we don't want to upset the Chinese, and we just had Mr. Cleverly making a speech at the Mansion House just a week ago saying we've got to engage. But engage in what way? I, I'm not against engagement, but are you going to take the opportunity to directly say, will you allow access? Will you allow an independent assessment? What are you going to do about the United Nations findings of Michel Rachelet, the special rapporteur, that serious crimes are being committed uh, inside Xinjiang? Um, and what are you going to do to keep on raising this in the United Nations Human Rights Council, which we and China are both members of? Now, the previous Foreign Secretary, uh, Dominic Raab, and then Liz Truss, they did both do that. And they saw that this is a, not only did, the, the, did China pose a, the CCP pose a threat to the UK's national interest, but also that unspeakable crimes were taking place there and indeed Dominic Raab said at the time that this was on a, a monumental scale that he had never expected to see given particularly that he himself came from a Jewish background and knew the atrocities that had been occurring during the Holocaust and he made a direct reference to that. So what has changed? Nothing to the good except that we have a different foreign secretary who is now wanting to revert to the so-called golden era and what was that dominated by? By the desire for lucrative trade deals. Now, the United Kingdom has got to take a, a, a stand on this and encourage other countries to stand with it. And we've got to be at the head of the queue in doing that. And if the others don't wish to stand with us, well, let's expose them for that. But if we're, we, we've seen with Putin that when you are weak-kneed uh, about liberal democracy, if you go on feeding the crocodiles, then it won't be long before the crocodiles eventually come to eat on you. Yeah, thank you. And I'd like to contextualise what you've just said in um, in the sort of next chapter of the book, which is about, it's titled The Burmese Military's Genocide. And again, I want to quote you, um, David, in your book, it says, even if you know you're going to be defeated, there are moments when it is right to take a stand and to put people on the spot. We're saying that representatives of the People's Republic of China are the ones who would veto such a resolution let them do so and let us demonstrate the difference between their values and ours. And you've just talked about the UK being a leader in this context. Can you tell me a bit more about um, what's happening in um, regards to the Rohingya Muslims and the genocide that's occurring there and why the inaction on the part of, for example, the UK and globally? It's 25 years ago, I, I travelled illegally into the Karen States and was for some years the patron of a charity called Karen Aid. And through another organisation I helped to, to found, the Jubilee Campaign, we took up a campaign about the ethnic minorities inside Burma, and particularly the Karen, the Kareni, the Shan, the Mong, and what was happening to them at the hands of the Burmese military. But it also led me to, to meet with people from the National League for Democracy and to champion the cause of uh, Dorsu, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was then under house arrest. And it was a great thing when she was finally released and when there were free elections and she was uh, became the de facto uh, Burmese leader. But then subsequently, of course, uh, she herself tried to defend the role of the Burmese military in targeting Rohingya Muslims. I travelled to Burma, I met with Dorsu, I raised specifically the atrocities against Burma Rohingya Muslims. In fact, I visited a village which had been burnt out only the night before my visit, uh, where the, the, um, the small village mosque had been burnt out, the Burmese 
Rohingyas who lived in that village uh, and had lived there for decades uh, had been forced to flee for their lives. So this came home to me in a very graphic way. I raised that case. I raised the need to create coexistence and for harmony and to respect difference, the right of people to live peaceably alongside their co-religionists. And unfortunately, the Burmese military don't see it that way. And eventually, uh, Dorsu herself was removed from offices, now again under, under house arrest, imprisoned. Um, the minorities are being targeted once more. And this includes uh, some of the other ethnic minorities as well as the Rohingya Muslims. But primarily, the Rohingya Muslims have been driven out. They're living in squalid conditions in many cases in Bangladesh, in Cox's Bazaar. Some are now going to be, we are told, forcibly repatriated to Burma with the collaboration of the Bangladesh government. Now, who is going to protect them? What What is the difference? We can see every day the continuation of aerial bombardment to villages by the Burmese military. And who is going to bring them? those who are responsible for these atrocities to justice. That still is the question that we ask in that book. It's the question that people, I mean, do you believe in lawfare or warfare? Lawfare means that you use law to bring people to account. The idea that Lemkin had in 1948 was to stop this recurrence all over again, all over again, but it goes on happening all over again because we are not capable, competent, we aren't determined enough to bring to justice those responsible. So we got perilously close the, um, to, to, to doing something about the Burmese military. The, the, the courts in The Hague had a look at this um, because it, Gambia, I think it was a small African country, decided to bring the, a case to the International Court of Justice. It, that was a good start, but it's, it seems to have got much, little further. And it will only be when we take away things like the right of veto, where c crimes of aggression are involved. I'm not saying that the United States, China, Russia, the French, ourselves, the five permanent members of the Security Council should not have a right of veto. But I am saying that in the case of crimes of aggression, that should be removed. And the French support uh, that kind of reform. And we should be pushing and pushing and pushing for that so that at least these kinds of cases could, without veto, be automatically referred to the ICC. And then Karim Khan KC, who is the prosecutor for the ICC, would then be able to make a determination and, if necessary, issue arrest warrants. Does it do any good? Yes, it does. Uh, I mean, for instance, Putin has just been warned by the South Africans that he shouldn't physically travel there for uh, the next meeting of the so-called BRICS countries uh, because of the outstanding arrest warrant that's been issued by the ICC about Ukraine. So yes, it does have some effect. It concentrates the mind. But one day, you may have your Nuremberg moment. One day, you might have your Milosevic moment that you may be arraigned before a court of law for the things that you you said should happen, could happen. Uh, and I think that we've got to show that there are consequences to your actions. Yes, and, and just just briefly talking about the the situation of the Rohingyas, um, and and indeed what Lord Walton said that uh, it is not safe for the community to go back to uh, Myanmar. We need to remember that, of course, the very perpetrator or the very actor that is stands accused of committing genocide against the Rohingyas is in power right now in in Myanmar, and um, it seems that that the international community is forgetting about this this important point and that 
they're, they're not going to be protected in, in Myanmar in that return. And uh, we just, just a couple of weeks ago saw that one of the deadliest attacks um, perpetrated by uh, by the military um, against the opposition. So we, we know that uh, right now it is not safe in Myanmar for anyone, let alone for a community that was targeted uh, by the military for annihilation. And indeed, there have been some good responses in terms of justice or small steps towards justice um, at the International Court of Justice uh, or International Criminal Court as well with the um, Fatou Ben Souda asking this important question whether she can um, whether the ICC has jurisdiction of a situation by virtue of um, close to one million of Rohingyas being pushed from non-state party to a state party Bangladesh but ultimately of course the road towards seeing any kind of movement on the topic is 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 very long, and in the meantime, those communities are at risk. They continue to be at risk. Um, there was a very important report from Physicians for Human Rights uh, from just 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 a few um, few months ago. They talk about the ongoing trauma that the communities live with, and they they, they did not receive any adequate um, assistance. We know, for example, what, what's been happening to the to, also to the Yazidi community. Um, the, the high um, the high um, number of, of suicides among the, the community because again they were left with this trauma without any kind of assistance um, so we need to not only think about the atrocities and and consider them as past atrocities and move on and as 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 we as the international community often do we move on from from one atrocity to another we need a better approach to to ensure that. We continue supporting those communities and we put in place protections as well that will enable them to survive. Because I think many of those communities that we discuss in the book are still at a serious, serious risk. And uh, only because media moved on, only because um, political agendas moved on, it doesn't mean that those communities are not um, at risk. And I think this is something that we we always need to to emphasize, and Lord Oldham mentioned, of course, that how many times those different situations have been raised in, here in Parliament. And just looking at various parliaments around the world, I, I do believe that the UK Parliament, thanks to Lord Oldham and, and a number of others, is the most active one on the topic of genocide. The topic of genocide has been raised so many times, but still the movement is very slow. And again, uh, as we mentioned just, just a few minutes earlier, it's all about interest that, that, that various actors have. But going back to Myanmar and the current situation, if we look at, for example, um, what the military is doing and the different engagements they have with Russia and China, I think this this should ring also all kinds of alarm bells. Um, it is very concerning when um, perpetrators of, of horrific atrocities, whether in China of, of the uh, Uyghur genocide, in Myanmar of the um, Rohingya genocide, or in, in, in Ukraine, we're talking about war crimes, um, crimes against humanity, possible genocide, and, and, and definitely crime of aggression. If they are working together, and I think that's very, very concerning, and it should be also on, on our agenda nonstop. And very briefly, what happened yesterday at the UN in New York? Um, the commissioner, the Russian commissioner for children, spoke at the UN. That I don't know how that happened, but but again, we need to be careful as well. Um, whom do we give those important platforms? And I, I I would I would like to know to know what happened that a person who is indicted by the ICC 
um, spoke at the UN and, and of course, a number of countries walked out of it um, as a form of protest, but... But every day we should be asking these questions and proof positive that I do is today's order paper here in the House of Lords. And I have six questions, that's the maximum you're allowed to ask. And they're all about the visit of Han Zheng, the Vice President of the People's Republic of China. I'll give you a flavour of them. Um, to ask His Majesty's Government what plans they have to discuss the motion passed by the House of Commons on the 22nd of April last year that declared events in Xinjiang against Uyghur Muslims to be a genocide with the Vice President during his visit to London for the coronation. Lord Alton to ask His Majesty's Government what plans they have to discuss. One, reports that Uyghur Muslims were banned from offering Eid prayers at mosques or in their homes during Eid al-Fitr. And two, the reported persecution of people with religious beliefs, including Falun Gong, Buddhists and Christians in China with the Vice President during his visit to London for the coronation. And in addition, just two weeks ago, we had the Treasury Minister of the Hong Kong administration, not here to meet just one minister, but the red carpet was put out for him to meet three separate ministers of the Crown to develop our business ties. Now, how can you just have business as usual when you see a man like Jimmy Lai, uh, who is in prison, the founder of Apple Daily, a British citizen, to, I might add, uh, 70 years of, 75 years of age, who will die in prison if he is undoubtedly if he's not released, but with uh, former legislators, former lawmakers, journalists, human rights activists, all in prison, uh, 1,200 political prisoners uh, in, in Hong Kong. How can you go on just doing business as usual with people like this? What are your values? What do you actually believe? That's what prompted us to write the book. And I hope that some of those who've been watching the podcast will... It's, uh, academic textbooks so they don't come cheap. So I'm not going to recommend that they necessarily can't buy, try to buy it. But why not ask the public lending library for a copy or their university institutions uh, or wherever it is that they, they have access to books and have a look at that book. And if they read nothing else, read the descriptions that came to us from evidence we took and witness statements that we took from Uyghur Muslims. And if they come to the conclusion that this isn't a genocide, and I hope they'll write to us and tell us, well, what would constitute genocide? Yeah, and the examples that you give in the book, um, the Daesh genocide against religious or belief minorities in Syria and Iraq, in Nigeria, which you describe as a mirror image of Darfur, you examine other situations of concern, including the Armenians, North Korea, um, Tigray, it was, you know, it was harrowing to read. Um, I was so glad to be able to read it, but it, it really was harrowing. Um, and I, I do think if listeners do go away and read your book, it, it, you know, it's sort of, it's almost enlivening because it makes you want to take action and it makes you want to do something um, and not, you know, remain silent. Um, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, I would just want to wrap up and ask you, your EdNote is titled, Have We Become an Alibi for Inaction? And you've talked today about this slowness to respond, um, you know, this difficulty of, you know, getting action from the international community. So I'm wondering, just to wrap it all up and bring your book together, can you comment on this idea of being an alibi for inaction? Yes. Uh, I mean, the whole purpose behind the book was to see, to judge, and then to act. 
Uh, yeah. There's no point just saying, isn't it terrible, wringing your hands. You have to do something about it. There was a great Irishman who sat for an English parliamentary constituency in Bristol, Edmund Burke, who famously said that all that's required for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. So I think that should always be in our minds. But let's also remember the words of Dietrich von Hofer, the Protestant theologian, who was executed by the Nazis. And he said, not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. So no alibis for inaction. Read the book, but go and do something about it. Indeed, and, and the book is not, not only to complain about the current uh, state of, of affairs, but to encourage, um, indeed, action. And and as Lord Old already mentioned, and it's mentioned in the book as well, that there are so many activities that are being undertaken here at the UK Parliament and replicated in different parts of the world. So there is something that we can do, and whether as politicians, as scholars, as, as lawyers, as civil society representatives, or... An, Everyday person out there can do something about it, and we all um, have certain, um, if not legal, then then um, moral duties to act when we see that those horrific atrocities are being perpetrated. It, it may be far away from home, but nonetheless, if we continue to allow it to happen, or if we do not act, the perpetrators will continue, and uh, our silence will will just encourage them to uh, to continue. And this is something that we Absolutely. always have to keep keep in mind. Of course, we are not responsible for everything what is happening, what everything bad that is happening out there. But there is something we can do. If you are there, I don't know. Whatever you do, you can contact your MP. You can contact um, anyone from the House of Lords, and definitely Lord Alton, and and us ask them to do something, to, to raise a question uh, with the government, to, um, to to raise a situation of a, a particular community. And uh, and this is how it starts. It is not going to, to happen on its own. And we've seen, especially from the Uyghur community, how powerful their advocacy has been over, over recent years. And we have not seen the same advocacy from, from other communities. And and then, of course, because of that, it, that various situations did not receive the attention that they should have received because of the severity of the atrocities. So we all have to work together um, in order to, to trigger change. One thing's for sure, but anyone who reads the book will not be able to say they did not know. Yeah. And that was its purpose. We want people to know. We then want people to act as well. Yeah, and I think that's a really important takeaway. Thank you so much that everyone, every person has the power to act and to do something in this space of atrocity. So thank you so much for that. Um, just to wrap up, I'm Jane Richards and I've been speaking with Dr. Evelina Ohab and Lord Alton of Liverpool. This is the New Books Network um, and the channel is New Books in Law and their book was State Responses to Crimes of Genocide, What Went Wrong and How to Change It. David and Evelina, thank you so much for your time.